Hello and welcome to the 33 Ways Not to Screw Up podcast. So I am your host, Alistair McDermott. Today, I'm here with my fellow author, Patricia Garland. Patricia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning and good to be here. Good to have you here. So so your book in this series is 33 Ways Not to Screw Up HR. And uh, as a business owner, I know HR is something that's very easy to screw up. So, it is. Um, yeah, I, I want to uh, talk to you a little bit about the, the background of the book before I get into any of the specifics. How, how did the book come about? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, <clears throat> I have a, a mutual friend with um, Melissa Wilson, who is the publisher through Networlding. And she encouraged me to get in touch with Melissa. This is, you know, I had just retired and it was a it was an exciting opportunity to sort of memorialize my approach to the profession and um, ended up being a springboard into lots of new opportunities now that my my vision of HR is out there in the marketplace. And so I, I have to ask you then, like, what what is your vision? Can you, can you explain a little bit about that, uh, and particularly how that might be different to how other people might envisage it? My vision of HR... There's, there's two things um, that I think are different than a lot of HR people. First of all, I like to keep things simple. I think that a lot of the complexities that HR introduces in the, in the way of policies and procedures and um, things of that nature, they just don't need to be there. We need to start with the assumption that our employees are adults who are to be trusted with making the business successful. That's why we hired them. Um, another thing that's a little different about my approach to HR is <clears throat> I don't like when HR gets put into the role of getting in between the manager and the employee. Unless there's a, a situation of misconduct that needs to be investigated, if an employee has an issue with a manager or a manager has an issue with an employee, I much prefer to coach them individually, sometimes together, but it's up to them to solve the problem between the two of them. The same goes for employees who have problems with each other. Um, A lot of HR people love to jump into the middle of that situation. I think it makes us feel important. Um, But you end up with the reputation of the person you can go to um, to present your complaints, and then your complaints will be taken on to the next person. I give an example in the book of a young woman who came to me um, and said, I think I'm being sexually harassed. Well, that's that's a very big allegation because that is that's a legal term. And um, so I asked her a few questions about what was going on. And although she had used the term sexual harassment, what was really happening was she had a coworker who was asking her out on a date. And it asked her out a couple of times. And, and she had said, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not free. I'm not free for dinner tonight. And she was being very polite with him, but in a way that would be very easy for him to misunderstand. So she wanted me to go to him and say, Jane doesn't want to go out with you. Well, there are lots of, lots of, lots of us who've been in that situation who would have been perfectly happy with somebody being able to take it over for them. But that doesn't, call, that doesn't allow that person to learn from it. It doesn't allow um, people to solve their own problems. So instead, what I did was I I spent a good hour, hour and a half coaching her 
on how to have that conversation. After I'd asked her a lot of questions about what what's the background with you and this guy? Have you had any problems in the past? Has he had has he shown any uh, intention to interfere with your work? You know, making sure that there wasn't anything I was missing. And then I coached her on exactly how to have that conversation in a way that was polite but direct. And she she had that conversation immediately after we had prepared together. And the guy's reaction was, oh, I'm sorry. I, I understand. I, you know, I won't do it again. And in the end, that employee, the, the employee felt like she was in control of the situation, which is a good thing. And the guy who had asked her out never knew I was involved. As far as he knew, he was working alongside of someone who was sort of in control of her own destiny and took charge of the situation. That is a very good way to solve that problem. Yeah, and it sounds like you're a communication coach from what you've said <laughs> I think, there. You know, I think that's, um, what, that's what good HR people do a lot. And I have, yeah. I've done that with managers. And again, the employee never knew that HR was involved. What they knew was they were working for a manager who could tell them the truth in a way that was diplomatic and professional, but direct. Mm-hmm. And so this, I think, goes back to uh, you have one of the chapters in the book is don't let HR be the complaints department. So is, is that mm-hmm. what you're talking about there? Is, is that is that um, the idea of becoming kind of like this go to uh, department where all and sundry will come with their personal issues of other people? Yeah. And, and a lot of HR people do that at first and then very quickly come to regret it, but you've already established that pattern and that reputation for the department. So when someone would come to me with a complaint, again, I'm not talking about a situation where there's misconduct that needs to be investigated. That's a whole other matter. But someone comes to me with a complaint, I would start asking questions like, <clears throat> have you have you talked to your manager about this? Oh, you haven't. What's What's stopping you from having that conversation? Okay. You're not sure how to do it. Um, how can I help you with this? Let's talk through how you're going to address this. And so now I'm going to go down a, a rabbit hole, possibly. I'm, I'm just wondering, are HR people empowered to have those kind of conversations by management? Uh, they certainly are at the companies I've worked for. Right. Okay. And, and it would be it would be seen as within their wheelhouse to do this kind of communication coaching. Absolutely. And the the beauty of it, again, is it puts the employee back in with the manager and and maintains that employee relationship um, without HR being this third party in the middle of the relationship who's constantly trying to interpret between the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost like you're becoming um, a mentor instead of a go-between. Yes, I like the way you're phrasing that. That's exactly what it is. And that's a that's a great, great way um, to improve the communication in the organization. Yeah. And and the, the other thing, because you're acting as coach mentor, I mean, I think that everybody should have a coach or a mentor of some type, uh, no matter what scenario, what situation you're in. Uh, I think sometimes um we, we see the you know the top um the top sports people in their field, you know, um, like uh, Venus Williams or somebody, she has a tennis coach, even though she's the best in the world. I don't know what, what, yes. what position she is right now, but she still has a coach. And and 
the best people at what they do always still have coaches and all of the best business people that I know, even business coaches, they also have business coaches. Uh, and so I, I think what you're talking about there is you're, you're talking about being a, a coach, um, communication maybe, but for, for the people who are working in your organizations, you as a HR person are being a coach. Yes. And what's really wonderful about that. And you mentioned the, um, the fact that everybody has a coach. I also needed guidance very often in the in the, the work that I did. And when it's you, you can't see it as clearly as you can, you know, when you're on the outside of it. So there are plenty of times I talk to my boss or my colleagues about challenges I was having in my role. And again, somebody who is is has great judgment and is on the outside of it can often see it more clearly. Yeah, it's that, it's that external perspective. It it just makes things so much easier because you're not emotionally caught up in the situation that the person is caught up in. And so it's much easier for you to see the wood for the trees. Yes, so, very true. Um, okay, let, let me move on and and, um, and ask you about um, other actionable tips that you might have for people that, that you talk about in the book. Are, are, there, um, are there any actionable tips that you can share with us for people who... Well, are- I think each of the 33 ways is an actionable tip. <laughs> um, there are there are several that I think HR people um, get involved with and often make mistakes. So um, one of the one of the chapters deals with um, coaching your organization and your individual managers and sometimes even your employees on how to have performance communication. And that can be something you're doing on a daily basis, or it can be the the performance review, which can be a very big deal if somebody hasn't been having the daily communication. And um, I also also talk about in another chapter, and this does connect, um, the words and phrases to take out of the lexicon of your organization. Um, And a lot of it has to do with performance communication, now that I look back on it. Um, Things like 90-day probation. And, um, you know, I'm going to write you up. That is just so juvenile. That is not the way adults talk to each other. So, you know, when, when 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 you've got an issue with someone's performance, you address it early on. When you start talking about I'm going to write you up or, um, you know, you have you have 60 days to improve your performance. Um, that's that's the kind of language that you use when it's already a foregone conclusion. Those kinds of performance documentations are really just a recap of everything someone has done wrong when you've already decided they're going to be out the door. That is not the way to handle a performance communication. What is the right way? The right way is to address things as they come up in the spirit of, I want this person to be a success. Generally, what happens instead is there is silence until the point where the manager can't stand it anymore, and then they just let loose on them. And that's just, that's that's counterproductive in every way you can possibly imagine. That's when you start talking about performance communication as documentation. That's not what you do when you're trying to help somebody be successful. So one of the things I talk about in the book is address things as they come up 
And if it's serious enough that you need to um, put something in writing or make it more formal, simply let the person know, I'm glad we had this conversation. I'm going to send you an email just to recap what we talked about so that we're both clear on, you know, what the importance of this is. Um, when you walk into a meeting with a write-up, it's guaranteed to go badly because you, you're walking in with the wrong spirit. You're walking in with the spirit of gotcha rather than the spirit of, I really want to help you be a success, but there are some things that are going wrong here. Okay, so it and it sounds to me like ironically the um, the performance uh, communication could be turned around there because the manager is who who is not trying to help somebody who's in that situation. Like you could look at them and say, "Well, you're not managing the person," so that, that kind <laughs> of goes both ways there. Yeah, there's usually a good argument for that. And when you're talking about um, performance reviews, that's another point I make in the book is that's an opportunity for the manager to get formal feedback from the employee on the manager's work and, and how well the manager is doing in being a coach and a mentor. And you've got to have a really good relationship for that to happen because most people are afraid of the performance review and view it as something that is done to them rather than something that's done collaboratively. It's hard to establish that culture. I, I guess that leads me back to something that I probably should have asked you earlier on, but is, is this book written for HR people or for frontline managers or for business owners or, or who, who is it aimed at? It's really something that I think all of those people you named could get value out of. There are some chapters like how to, you know, what establishing a, a, a comp and benefit structure, that type of thing. Some of them are a little technical for general management people, but a lot of it would be very useful for managers. A lot of it would be very useful for entrepreneurs who are trying to establish a culture. A lot of it would be useful for small business owners who are thinking to bring in an HR function from the beginning and want it to start out the right way. Okay. Yeah. And, and I, I can see how, I mean, I'm interested in it as a business owner who, uh, and, and now most of my employees, so I've got two and two and uh, a half or depends on how you count them, but they're actually subcontractors. But I, I can see how a lot of the legal stuff might not be relevant for me, but a lot of the communication stuff that you're talking about here would be um, absolutely um, right, totally relevant for, for my scenario. Um yeah. So, okay, I want to, I, I know you mentioned in the book and one of the chapter titles ju jumped out at me as, as very simple, uh, source good people. I want you to tell me a little bit about that. Um, what, what's that all about and how, how is it done? Um, it's, when I, when I think about sourcing good people, I used to go back to my salespeople in the organization <clears throat> and talk to them about how do you find business? Because Essentially, sourcing is this is the same thing that our salespeople do. Um, HR people make mistakes when they, for instance, um, just run an ad in in whatever um, source they use for running ads, and they write it like a job description, which is not compelling. 
it's boring and it's uninteresting and it sounds legalistic. Um, so instead of doing that, you should constantly be looking for good people, whether there's an opening or not. You should be establishing those contacts day in and day out, no matter where you are. Um, like I like I said, our salespeople did not wait until they had a business need. You know, if they're sitting next to somebody in at a baseball game and discover that this is a this is a business person, they'll strike up a conversation and try to make a contact. Um, I used to do that constantly, um, especially for uh, people who we had a very hard time finding warehouse associates. So when I went to Home Depot, if I got great service from someone, I'd slip them a business card. I gave my business card out to, to the guy driving the Uber. I mean, <clears throat> you strike up conversations everywhere you can and develop those business contacts. When you meet somebody who's interesting at a seminar or any kind of a meeting, um, connect with them on LinkedIn. You don't wait until you have a need to create that contact. So when you have the need, you want to have a lot of contacts available to you already. You want that that linkage already in place. Yeah, and, and so, th I mean, that has benefits in multiple ways because you're growing your network, you're growing a potential audience as well. And, yes. uh, and it's it's networking and there's there's lots of benefits to that, but growing that audience. And then when you, when you do have that, that need, like you said, you can put that message out, more people will see it. Maybe the, the Uber driver who you thought was really good, uh, isn't, um, or doesn't want to take it, but maybe his cousin is available and, and is interested. You don't know where all of those connections are going to go, but you, you made the effort, you grew the network. I really like that you were uh, giving up business cards. Uh, I know, I know, um, a lot of people watching this might not even know what a business card is. It's, it's a bit like <laughs> a snippet of your LinkedIn profile. that's actually printed out on cardboard and handed out to people. And we used to do that back in the day. So, yeah. Well, the, the other thing about business cards is <clears throat> when you're talking about um, a lot of hourly positions, these people are not on LinkedIn necessarily. And so you're, you're missing out on an entire segment of the workforce. A lot of people who are not on LinkedIn are not on LinkedIn because they're not interested in, in moving jobs until you start talking to them. So if you limit your audience to who is on LinkedIn, you're missing a whole segment of candidates. That's you got to throw a bigger net. Yeah, yeah. I was just helping uh, an articulated truck driver <laughs> with their resume recently, because that's what you get asked to do sometimes. Yeah. Um, and he's not on LinkedIn, and I don't think he'll ever be on LinkedIn, and he'll never get hired through LinkedIn. Exactly. But and and if, and if there is a, a a qualified truck driver with twenty years experience. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to and me. And believe me, you can find one. <laughs> a lot of people are. <laughs> that's. That's yeah. a very hard position to fill right now. Yeah, yeah. So, and another um, thing I mentioned in that mm -hmm. that sourcing good candidates is um, when you're when you're looking at college recruiting, do you really have to go Ivy League 4.0? Um, I've I've seen that artificial hurdle cause companies to lose fabulous candidates. For example, the, this is something I mentioned in the book. Um, Candidates who are at a state college who graduated with a 3.5 while they were financing their own education by working, mm -hmm. that person is going to bring a tremendous amount of strength to your organization. Um, so, so don't be so 
um, picky about some of these some of these expectations of everything has to be perfect. You get some of these great candidates who don't have those perfections who bring a myriad of strengths with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I can well imagine. Um, I want to ask you because I know you have some great stories. Um, can, it, it, do you have a favorite story from all of the ones that inspired the chapters? Is there is there any that particularly stand out? Um, you want to hear about a screw up, or do you <laughs> you want to hear? About... Yeah, I think I think we all want to hear about a screw okay. up. Okay. Oh God, I have so many of them; it's hard to choose from. And by the way, that's one of the reasons I love this series is. Um, the, the key is don't be afraid of screw ups. Just make sure you know which ones are too hard to reverse because you're, you are going to screw up. That's how all of us learn. But, um, one of my favorite screw ups was when I was first learning to work in an international environment. Um, I didn't realize how much I was influenced by my own U S culture. And all of us are like this. Um, I've worked for German companies and French companies and American companies, and everybody does this. Um, A lot of people like to talk about Americans being unique in that way, but frankly, um, I've run into it in every country I've worked in. But my own example was I was asked to create an incentive plan for a small group of um, Japanese employees. And I didn't I didn't think at the time to ask any questions about culturally how pay might connect with the Japanese culture, but pay is a very cultural issue unbeknownst to me at the time. So I immediately leaped in and created a, what would be a pretty typical American style individualized incentive plan, not understanding the Japanese um, cultural connection to being a more team and collective type culture. And I gave them this brilliant incentive plan that was totally counter to the way any Japanese incentive plan ought to be written. And the the Japanese managers were too polite to tell me that I was totally off base. And so they they smiled and and thanked me and tucked it in a drawer and it never went anywhere. So my, that's part of my chapter about being humble when you're working in an international environment mm-hmm. and getting outside your own culture. And I think that message is as valuable for anyone um, from outside the U.S. coming into the U.S. as the reverse. How did you learn that that was a mistake? Um, because I followed up multiple times and they, they just didn't want to level with me as me, an American, going, why didn't you just tell me? Well, for them to have said, God, what were you thinking? That To them, that would have been extremely rude and totally inappropriate. So eventually, I talked to someone in the division who was able to gently say to me, you kind of missed the mark on that. (laughs) (laughs) And then I I learned gradually about that culture and, and why that was such a bad solution for them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's great. <laughs> well, um, I'm glad that you can laugh about it now too. So, uh, and, and you know what, they, they you do. have to. <laughs> yeah, and and that's what I love about this this series as well is it gives us the opportunities to write about those screw ups. Um, probably my biggest screw up that I mentioned in in my book, which is about business podcasting, uh, is that uh, I didn't actually launch my my podcast uh, for about 
seven or eight years after I planned it. And uh, so it took me a long, <laughs> long time to, to actually launch. And so that's that's my, it's actually my chapter number 33, because it's the last thing I think <laughs> people good. should read before they go do it. That's good. Um, That's good. But that one is a very personal one for me as well. So I, I completely understand where you're coming from there. So um, well, there's there's one other I'll mention that I, mm-hmm. I do get into in the book at talking about performance communication. And it also ties into this approach of coaching. Um, when I was in the auto industry, I had a, I worked with a designer who was uh, like a lot of technical people. He was brilliant at his work, but he was kind of prickly as far as his his style his communication, his approach to his manager. And he came to me one day and said, I'm, I'm going to have a performance review anytime now. And I know it's going to be a disaster. I, my manager's a jerk. He never listens to me, da, 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 da. So um, I spent a long time coaching him on how to be less confrontational as you walk into that meeting and how to do a better job of selling your accomplishments rather than pounding your fist on the desk, which is what he was inclined to do. Um, And his manager, I knew from experience, was scared of the guy because he was so intimidating. So the day of the performance review comes, I'm like, I've got them all prepared. It's going to go great. I can't wait to hear how this goes. He comes back into my office and says, I told you it wasn't going to work. It was a complete disaster. What happened? He said, he wouldn't even talk into my tape recorder. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, I obviously missed that one, (laughs) but sometimes, sometimes it doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah. It's when people, when people come up with stuff so off the wall that you never even would have considered to ask, yeah. Do you intend to bring in a tape recorder? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And a bit like the the business You know, when you, when you bring a tape recorder into a conversation, what message do you suppose that was giving your manager? (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, (laughs) Um, I, I want to ask you about remote working because it's a kind of a thing of the moment. Um, can you tell me your take? I don't know if you've written about it in the book. Is, is that something that you, you address in there or, or uh, it does, I, didn't, it? I didn't address it directly. Um, my attitude about remote working, which goes way, way, way past, uh, way before the, the uh, pandemic was that there's there's a few elements that need to be present. First of all, the work needs to lend itself to remote working. Um, I, a couple of times, had warehouse associates say to me, how come I can't work from home? I'm not kidding. They actually asked me that. Like, because you're driving a forklift and you're moving products from the loading dock onto the rack. How could you possibly do that remotely? So, okay, so the work has to lend itself to that. Um, And the other thing is the people themselves have to be suitable for remote work. Um, Some people are great at remote work. They're very focused. They're very, um, they're not distracted easily. Some people don't do their best work remotely. So um, I think it's a good thing, generally speaking, but the manager also has to have a completely different set of skills including being able to keep the team cohesive um, when people aren't face-to-face. And I, I do think that when you're, not, when you're working remotely and you're trying to be a cohesive team, it's hard to do that and you do lose something. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think 
I think you're right about that. I think it's now I, I'm personally I'm somebody who's remote worked since my very first job back in 2001 or so. My my first boss was in uh, was in Kansas. My teammates were in San Francisco and the UK and Austin, Texas, and I was in Dublin, Ireland. So, um, it's pretty and, remote. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty remote for 2001. Um, but you know, we we had a we had a, a conference call. Like we didn't even have video calls. We just had conference calls. Um, yeah. but, but we made it work. <laughs> so now with, I, I, I think nowadays with people with, you know, we can just get on zoom, like with the click of a button, it's like, wow, this is, this is amazing. I think that the, the tools are so, so advanced now compared to what we used to have. Yeah. So, um, yeah, They're I think, fabulous. Uh, I, I think, uh, I think it's, it's great. I think that, that more businesses need to embrace it and, um, and accept that if they want to get the best people, they have to accept that they're the best people are going to have the choice to remote work. And yeah. So you got to offer it. That's that's true. I I think the challenge in remote work is making sure that you preserve the spontaneity that you can get in a in an office environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you lose that element of passing someone in the hall, and so yeah. when you when you call when you contact somebody remotely, it's very intentional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and that's, one thing that can that, pose a challenge. One thing that I have found. And this was actually suggested to me by my employee, Iko, my assistant, was we, we were working one day, we were on a call, and both of us got distracted by what we were doing. And we started working silently on our own individual parts of the project. And we both realized an hour later, hey, the call is still open. You know, we're, <laughs> we were like we had just left Zoom open while we're working. <laughs> And it's like, oh yeah, that was kind of cool. And and so we were we were actually able to work while while we had the call open. And, and um, so we've done that we've done that quite a few times now. And it's it's a good way to um, to kind of stay focused and be able to say, hey, can I get your help on this for a sec? You know. So um, that, and that wasn't even me um, suggesting it. It was it was Ico that suggested it that we 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 do that more. You know, we do that intentionally. So um, so maybe that's that's something that 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 somebody can take from this. If uh, as, as my remote work tip <laughs> for you, that's very interesting. Yeah. yeah, I had a, a lot of managers before the pandemic <clears throat> made this, you know, a, a necessity. But a lot of managers who resisted work from home arrangements because they said, how can I tell if someone is productive? And, you know, my reaction to that was, I hope you're not determining that someone is productive today because they're in the office for eight hours. You're not you're not managing them by staring at them, are you? I mean, you're managing them by looking at their the work that they produce, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that the uh, the work from home arrangement uh, forces leaders into taking a different approach to how they manage. I, I want to wrap up uh, because we're coming close to time, but I, I want to ask you uh, about safeguarding morale because I know that this is a really important part of the book. <clears throat> yep, and and in my book. The talk about safeguarding morale is about safeguarding your own morale as an HR person, because HR is a it's a it's a very difficult job. And it's, um, you know, one of the examples I give is um, there was one instance where I had worked pretty hard to actually save the job of one of our salespeople who I thought his manager was was. intending to terminate him when he really hadn't given him a chance. And I, I really worked to make that happen. You got to give him more time, have this conversation, et cetera. 
literally the next day I was in that sales office and the guy walked past me and said, uh-oh, HR's here. I wonder who's getting fired. I thought, you SOB, I just saved your job and you're never even going to know it. <laughs> so you get that comment a lot. You have to let it sort of ping off you. And a lot of times HR people have to stockpile their own sense of what they've done for the organization. Um, because this is not a job where people are patting you on the back a lot. You have to, you have to do it yourself. And you have to remind yourself what good you've done for the organization, how you've helped the business, how you've helped the manager, how you've helped the employee, um, even though others are not necessarily cheering you on. That's a, that's a good one to end on. Um, well, okay, let me ask you a little bit about the the book series itself because I'm I'm always interested <laughs> to ask uh, fellow authors in this series. Like, how do you find the fact uh, uh, that you're an author in it with all this group of other authors? Do you find the community aspect good? Oh, What's it's fantastic. Yeah, we, as you know, we have our regular calls with the authors, and um, it's it's very inspiring to see that we are. We are all struggling with the same challenges, and we are also all having the same successes eventually. Um, it's That community is very important to writers, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I find it um, really interesting because uh, I've always been uh, a lone wolf, and, and uh, so I'm, I'm not um, in many groups where I get together and have regular calls. So um, it's it's interesting. It's nice. It's nice to be part of that. So I do enjoy that, and um, I also like the fact that I get to do uh, to do another podcast. So that's <laughs> good too. So um, Patricia, thank you for coming on. Where can people find find more about you if they're interested in learning more? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Patricia Garland. And the book, of course, 33 Ways Not to Screw Up HR is on uh, Amazon in both Kindle and paperback format in the US and Canada. I, I did choose to limit it to those markets because um, so much of the information is not necessarily relevant legally to other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that makes sense. And if anybody from outside those areas wants a copy, just contact me on LinkedIn, I'll send you one. <laughs> that's that's very good of you um and and you know I, I think that there are some parts of what you're talking about like the the kind of the coaching and the mentoring and the communication that i think are relevant for everybody so um, i think I'd so encourage you, yes. i'd encourage you to do that um well thank you for listening and you can find more episodes at patricia's book and the rest of the series at 33waysseries.com uh, i'm alistair mcdermott my guest was patricia garland and thank you very much for watching or listening and thank you for having me thanks patricia